Hello, I'm Alan Kohler and welcome to Talking Finance. Well, there's been a lot of action on the economy and the markets this week, so let's get stuck straight into it. Jane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, tells me why the Dow fell 800 points on Tuesday and what that means. Alan Oster, Group Chief Economist at NAB, runs us through the national accounts and what it means for interest rates. And Cameron Kusher, Head of Research at CoreLogic, explains that the decline in house prices is accelerating. Oh, and it's not very quiet in politics either, of course. This week's bulletin from the Canberra Hothouse is from Paul Bongiorno, columnist for the Saturday paper and veteran political journalist. And now to tell us about the markets, here's Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Well, Shane, Wall Street was closed last night for the funeral of George H.W. Bush. Do you think that was a bit of a relief for everybody? I mean, the previous session, you know, was an 800-pointer on the on the Dow. I think it certainly was a relief. It was a relief for me not to uh, to, to have to see it. But uh, I, I think the fact that it closed down enabled a little bit of the dust to settle around the two key issues that have been affecting markets this week, or at least affecting Wall Street. The, the, the first one was the trade issue, um, where sentiment around it seems to have gone all over the place. You know, lots of optimism on earlier in the week. Uh, and then, of course, the questioning starting to, to creep in as to what exactly was agreed. And then, of course, yesterday we saw the Chinese come out and say... Yeah, confirm various aspects of it and even refer to the 90-day period, which did at least inject a bit of um, a bit of certainty or confidence around the deal. Uh, and, of course, also there's been this ongoing debate about what the yield curve is telling us. Now, when I, uh, for most of my career, I've only ever focused on one, one yield curve, and that's the gap between the 10-year bond yield and the, and the short-term interest rate is set by the central bank, which is the Fed funds rate in the US. Um, and that's still positive, but of course, these days, you know, people tend to focus on all sorts of different parts of the yield curve, and the gap between the the five-year bond yield and the three-year bond yield has gone negative, and some have said, well, that means recession is around the corner. Um, the problem with both of those things is they're all a bit airy-fairy. You know, the, the, the trade negotiations obviously will continue for a while yet. I think the only piece of really good news out of that was that we won't see the January 1 tariff hike that the, the US had threatened to put through. I think that is a, a step forward. That's a good sign. Um, beyond that, we've still got to wait till March next year to see what they come up with. And on the yield curve, I think the concerns there are grossly exaggerated. Um, historically, even when the yield curve goes negative, it can, can be up to uh, two years or so before the US economy goes into recession. So that takes us into uh, late 2020 or maybe even 2021. And the share market normally only looks forward. Now, historically, the share market's only peaked on average about five four or five months before recession. So that's just too far away to get overly concerned about. And in any case, the standard yield curves in the US still haven't gone negative. So I think it probably was appropriate to have a bit of a shutdown and let the dust settle and hopefully um, it'll be a bit calmer for the rest of the week. I read a blog this morning by a fund manager in the US who was trying to figure out why the the market fell on Tuesday. And he was looking at the, the precise time the Dow turned lower, which happened to be 12.04 p.m. And he was looking at, you know, what happened then? And the answer he came up with was that something happened in the UK about Brexit, 
which said that there'd have to be the publishing of the Brexit legal advice from the government. And so he's, he reckons that's what caused it. What do you reckon? What do you think of that? It's, it's possible. Uh, I, I think investors are looking around. And of course, investor sentiment now is very negative. So people are looking around for negative news, and that was certainly negative news. Um, that said, the Brexit uh, issue has a long, long way to go. And I'm not totally convinced that, uh, that it's, it's going to have a huge impact on what happens in the US. So my inclination is that, yes, it may have been a trigger in there, um, but I don't know that it's it's a rational trigger because this Brexit issue just has so many twists and turns ahead of it. And even if they do go out without a deal, it's it's a huge negative for the UK economy, um, but it's not necessarily, I, I can't see a big impact on the rest of Europe or a big certainly a big impact on the US. So I, I kind of think that Brexit, is important for the UK, but for the rest of the world, it's not that big a deal. That's what I would have thought. But anyway, just turning to the dollar for a moment, the obviously it clunked down yesterday morning when the national accounts came out. But interestingly, it's kept falling overnight, now down to, uh, what, 70, 72.7 at the moment. Seems to be pretty weak. What's your view about the dollar? Well, I think it's, it's ultimately going quite a bit lower. It if you go back a month or so ago, you know, during the big falls in October in share markets, it, it got as low as 70.2 US cents. At that point in time, it was very oversold. Speculators were all short. You know, hedge funds were all short the Aussie dollar. So when that happens, you often get a bit of a bounce as some of the short positions are unwound and the negative sentiment reverses a little bit. And that's what we've seen over the last month or so, you know, with indications that the Fed might slow down the pace of interest rate hikes. Um, and I guess we a little bit of better economic data in Australia um, coming through. But I think that's all it was. It was a bounce. And I, I think the underlying reality in Australia is that growth is not as strong as the Reserve Bank was hoping. It's not the 3.5% or so that they were saying. It's, uh, well, most recent numbers, it's 2.8%. It's actually quite a bit weaker. And the first half of the year exaggerated the underlying strength in the economy is now partly being revised away. And the problem in Australia is that we've, after many years of strong house prices, house price growth in Sydney and Melbourne, which boosted consumer spending in those two states, that's now going in reverse. And when the value of your home goes down over a lengthy period, and I think we're going to see house price declines continuing into next year, that uh, makes people feel less wealthy. Um, they're less inclined to run down their savings rate to maintain consumer spending in the face of weak wages growth. So I think what's happening is that you know, the, the uncertainty around the consumer is actually starting to show up in weak consumer spending, even though it had been surprisingly robust or holding up reasonably well until recently. And so therefore, I think very unlikely that the next move in interest rates by the Reserve Bank will be up. More likely scenario is that the next move by the Reserve Bank will actually be a rate cut. And um, I, yesterday, in my mind, was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, we had seen some weaker data, particularly around housing. Um, job ads seem to be slowing down, ongoing weakness in wages and inflation. Um, but yesterday, with those GDP numbers coming in well and truly on the low side, driven by weak consumption, in my mind, that uh, that that caused me to sort of um, change my, my own view, which was rates on hold for the next uh, year or two ahead of a hike at the end of 2020 to now being uh, now looking for a rate cut uh, sometime in the second half of next year. 
In fact, you, you mentioned 2.8%. But actually, if we published and talked about annualised quarterly GDP growth, we'd be talking about 1.2 or 1.3%, wouldn't we? That's right. It'd be 1.2, 1.3. If we were in America, that's what the number would that's what we'd be. Talk- so, that's what we'd be talking about. I mean, and, yeah. and that is that is a third of what the RBA said growth would be just the day before. That's right. Very weak uh, numbers there. It's, uh, and I, I know I know you can argue, well, Australia is still, uh, the 2.8 number is still pretty good on many global comparisons. But don't forget our population growth is uh, 1.6%. So per capita growth in Australia is actually quite soft. And actually, and actually per capita GDP in the last quarter actually went backwards. That's sometimes a measure of the standard of living. It actually went backwards. So these are pretty weak numbers. Um, I'm not in the recession camp for Australia. I don't think we'll see that because we've got infrastructure spending, which is still very strong. There's signs that business investment might be picking up the big drag from mining investment falling. That seems to be coming to an end. And hopefully, uh, if the global economy holds up our, our export. Uh, growth should remain okay. Um, but I do think that growth is going to be quite a bit weaker than the Reserve Bank's been talking about. That uh, that points to lower interest rates eventually because it'll take the Reserve Bank a while to change their mind on this. And it ultimately points to a, a lower Aussie dollar probably heading into the 60s against the US at this stage, I'd say into the high 60s. But I do think sometime next year it will, it will go below 70 cents. Great to talk, Shane. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Alan. And now for this week's view of the economy, here's Alan Oster, Chief Economist at NAB. So, Alan, in the RBA decision on Tuesday, which was no no surprise, of course, leaving the interest rate on hold at 1.5%, but they, the statement said that they confirmed that, well, in fact, they confirmed that their view on growth was that it would average 3.5% over this year and next year. And in the following day, we had <laughs> national accounts showing 0.3% for the quarter on quarter. Now, that led to an annual rate of growth of 2.8%. But if we in Australia reported GDP in the same way as they do in the US, which is annualised quarterly number, it would have been 1.2%, not 2.8%. That, that's right, although you do need to be a little bit careful. What's happened, uh, and I'm not trying to uh, defend the RBA, but what's happened essentially is the um, statistician after the last set of accounts revised history up a lot, um, and um, and then in this set of accounts, history's been revised back down again. Um, and yes, it's true that um, if you annualised the last quarter, you'd get your 1%, but if you annualise the quarters before that, you get 4% um, So in each of the quarters. So I think to some extent it's statistical volatility that is causing the problems, but the reality is, given where we're at, um, they're not going to get three and a half percent unless they get some really strong data going forward, and and there are reasons to be optimistic in the sense that the public sector is still growing really strongly, um, particularly on infrastructure, but it's also growing pretty strongly in terms of consumption, which is basically wages, and I think a lot of that is national disabilities. Uh, they've built a lot of LNG platforms, and um, in, to some of the, the slowdown in the September quarter was actually because one of the platforms that they were building in the Northern Territory has actually finished. So they're not building it anymore, now they're exporting it. So that ha- that's caused a temporary negative, if you like. 
and hopefully we're seeing a little bit of um, business investment improve because uh, it's sort of flowing over from the infrastructure spend. But and we saw this uh, yesterday as well. The consumer is really weak, and so what we're seeing is, you know, not much growth in wages, very high levels of utility prices, um, house prices not doing much. In fact, going down in Sydney, and Melbourne. And they've got a lot of debt, so consumers are nervous. And that is one of the big differences between us and the Reserve Bank for ages. Our view has been for a long time that you know, consumers not going to recover anytime soon because we don't see wages going up in a And in fact, way are you saying, soon. Alan, are you saying that part of the growth in wages is due to the National Disability Insurance Scheme? No, this is counted um, in consumption of the public sector. So what's happening is people, in very simple terms, the people who were previously being uh, looking after their um, disabled uh, family uh, were not counted, and now they're counted, counted essentially in the public sector consumption because it's within the national disability scheme. So that's expanding so GDP. So that is expanding GDP. And that expands GDP. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I know. So there's all sorts. By of how much? Tricks. By how much? Um, well, not a lot, but it's sort of contribute. It's if you look at public sector demand um, in in that area, it's it's growing at around five um, percent. Um, so it's a growth area, if I can put it that way. Um, so what, uh, it, it what, contributes. What, what, do you have any idea what it would be growing without the NDIS? We don't know. Um, but, you know, in the past, that sector has typically grown 25 to 3%. So, you know, it's, it's add, it'd be adding 0.2.3 per quarter. Oh, sorry, 0.2.3 over a 12-month period to extra growth. But it's just, um, you know, the way these things work and they're counted. Um, and so it's not a big thing, but it's a, one of the things that adds to growth. But isn't it isn't it fair to say that, then that the the GDP growth in the September quarter, such as it was, was entirely due, in fact, more than entirely due to net exports and public demand. Yes, uh, and if you look at um, if you look at what we call gross national expenditure, which is everything excluding um, essentially the ex, ex, external parts of the economy. Gross national expenditure um, essentially was zero, and then to the extent that you got um, growth, it was 0.3 in net exports, um, and so that's how you got your 0.3. Um, so the domestic part of the economy, um, which adds up, if you like, private sector consumption, private sector investment, um, dwellings, basically you went sideways. But again, you you know um, that's been a while been growing like that for a while. So, um, you know, the, I, I do think you need to also put a bit of context that these numbers bounce around a lot. And to be brutally honest, I don't, well, I certainly didn't believe that the economy in the first half of this year was growing faster than an annualised rate of 4%, which is what the statistician said. Now, he's revised it a little bit, but not much. Um, and so I think this is part of a natural catch-up, if you like, um, but I still worry going forward that the consumer is basically still extremely conservative. 
And I don't see that changing. And so, you know, we can get through growth in public sector demand, net exports of uh, two and three quarters or so. But once you get through that, 55% of the economy is private consumption. And we have uh, a view that says the, the economy, by the time you get to 2020, be growing a little bit above 2%, but not 3 and not 35 either. So, so Alan, last time I looked, you guys were calling um, a rate hike sometime yep. next year, I think. Yep. You must be. You must we, be getting. You must yeah, be getting no, ready to change your view. <laughs> well, we said yesterday that we would be changing our view. One, not so much because we've got the economy right. We think we've got the economy more, more right than the Reserve Bank, but the Reserve Bank is very. Um, reluctant to do anything on rates in case it fires up housing again. And so I think their their focus is more on um, having a look at the economy, looking at wages, looking at inflation, and basically saying, and we wouldn't mind um, getting the balance sheet of consumers into a better space in terms of their debt levels. And so... I reckon the, the uh, I reckon yeah. the housing market is beyond being fired up, i got to say. <laughs> Well, it's Sydney, Melbourne. Yeah. And again, well, there's no way that's going to get fired up. No, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, we've we've got a peak to trough fall in Sydney, Melbourne of about ten percent, and it's almost already there. So we'll probably, when we put our new forecast out, put a little bit more into that. But again, context: if I go back three to four years, Sydney prices, I'll say four years, Sydney prices are up twenty five percent. And Melbourne prices are up 35%. So, um, you know, if, and if you quote the Reserve Bank, what they basically say is if you're going to have a adjustment in house prices to make the consumer a little bit more more stable going forward, it's not a bad time to do it if you've got a time when the world economy is strong, the Australian economy is strong, interest rates are low, and unemployment in Sydney, Melbourne is 4.5%. So I, I think you just need to be a little bit more careful um, in terms of saying, you know, woe is us because Sydney, Melbourne house prices have fallen 10%. Um, now, you know, if they fell 20 to 30%, sorry, the Reserve Bank would be in action and they wouldn't be going up. But that's not what we really fundamentally think is going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, except, except we don't know what's going to happen, do we? Well, it's very difficult because if you run, what you've got is you've got a combination of banks are being more tricky or they're, they're less inclined to loan for invest, investor homes. Um, they're still growing at 7% for owner-occupied. Um, but um, traditionally, what you typically get is things like population, interest rates, unemployment are the things that drive the demand. This side is the supply side. So banks are being more careful. Um, they're basically saying to you, hey, guys, um, we need to see your receipts, what you're actually spending, and that's taking a little bit longer. And so, therefore, we're not sure how much further these uh, house price falls will be. But, you know, if you said to me, peak to trough Sydney, minus 15, uh, which would, across Australia, contribute, well, basically mean that house prices fell 5% this year and maybe 5% next year. I'd say that's probably reasonable. Um, and what might that do in terms of taking off growth? It might take a quarter point off growth and make the Reserve Bank sit a little bit longer. 
And that's what I think is basically probably most likely to happen. Thanks, Alan. Great to talk as always. Thank you. To talk about property prices, here's Cameron Kusher, the head of research at CoreLogic. Cameron, is it fair to say that the decline in Melbourne and Sydney house prices is beginning to accelerate? It certainly is fair to say that. In uh, in the month of November, we saw a 1.7% fall, uh, sorry, 1.4% fall in Sydney and a 1% fall in Melbourne. Uh, in Sydney, that was the fastest rate of decline since uh, back in 2007. And in Melbourne, it was the fastest rate of decline since uh, 2011. So, Certainly, we've been seeing reasonably large falls on a month-on-month basis, but uh, November really did see a pretty significant acceleration in those falls. So in your experience, and you've been watching property for 15 years or so, uh, this late in the cycle or this deep into a down cycle, if the falls are accelerating and getting larger, what does that mean? I think it means that um, there's, there's fewer buyers out there in the market. We're seeing that in sales volumes and we're seeing that in properties taking longer to sell. Uh, and I think just the tight credit conditions are, are really driving this weakness. So I think it was a little bit surprising uh, seeing the Reserve Bank's uh, commentary after their board meeting that there was really no change in their tone around what was happening in the housing market. I would personally, it's a, it's a little bit alarming to me that uh, we are seeing this acceleration now. Yeah, what I'm wondering is whether, you know, if you see this kind of acceleration, because prices have been falling for 12 months pretty much, haven't they? I mean, so 12 months into a decline and you see the acceleration, has that happened in the past in your experience? Not really, not not uh, not like this. And certainly if we look at the declines that we're seeing in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, uh, whilst they might not quite be as deep as some of the, uh, of the previous downturns. In terms of the pace of the downturn, it's it's faster than most of the uh, previous declines we've seen. So yeah, I think it is a bit of a, a cause for alarm that, uh, as you say, this late into the cycle, we're 16 months into the downturn in Sydney, uh, 13 months in Melbourne. The fact that we are seeing acceleration uh, says that it's it's probably not as orderly as we, we're led to believe. And certainly nowhere near over. No, that's right. I mean, it, it looks like uh, at the very earliest, you could probably see things change maybe March, April next year. And that would be once the uh, Royal Commission into the banking sector has been handed, uh, the, the report has been handed out. Maybe we then we would see APRA and the Reserve Bank and ASIC make some changes around lending policies, maybe ease back a little bit. But that would be the absolute earliest. And there's no guarantee that that would happen. Yeah, so what's your feel for what sort of broader impacts this might have? Well, the broader impact is that the wealth effects really helped retail trade, you know, car sales on the way up, particularly in uh, New South Wales and Victoria. And now you've got that, uh, uh, the declines the, the in the housing market. People are feeling less wealthy. A lot of people have bought over the last 12 or 18 months and uh, are seeing the value of their home less than what they paid for it. So I think it does, uh, is likely to lead to people tightening their purse strings. It will suck some of the demand out of other areas of the economy. Uh, add to that, obviously, you've got uh, building approvals and, and construction activities starting to roll over as well. So it does have the potential to uh, to start to derail the economy a little bit. Uh, and that's why I think that although the Reserve Bank isn't targeting property prices, I think they'll be very closely watching uh, how this unfolds over the next couple of months. Of course, we don't have another board meeting now until February. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if there's a, a bit of a change in uh, commentary and tact by the Reserve Bank next meeting. 
Yeah, but I mean, as you point out, the, the statement this week was dripping in complacency. Yeah, it certainly was. And I guess none of the none of the statement really changed that much. I think it'll be a little bit more interesting to see what was actually discussed when we do get the minutes. But uh, yeah, I think it, it was quite complacent about the housing market. Maybe they're not getting too concerned about one month's worth of data. But, you know, for the last six or seven months, we've been seeing both Sydney and Melbourne record uh, monthly declines of at least around half a percent. So, um, again, maybe maybe they're just taking a slow and steady approach and, and not too concerned about one month of data. But if we get, you know, if by the time the February meeting comes around and we've had uh, another couple of months of 1% plus falls, then I, I think we will see a change in, uh, in commentary from the Reserve Bank. But they would have had the November numbers from you, wouldn't they? They did, the yes. So they, they received the November numbers. I mean, they, they got it the day before their meeting. They acted like they hadn't read them. Well, that's I guess that's their prerogative, and and as I said, we, I would I would assume they have read them, um, and I I guess that uh, they're just waiting to see some more data to to confirm exactly what's happening. Yeah, it is true that it's not just it's just Melbourne and Sydney really, and Perth now. I mean, it's interesting that Perth is suffering an almost as serious a decline now as Melbourne and Sydney, even though it didn't really participate in the boom, the recent boom. No, that's right. It's interesting. I was in Perth last month and, and pretty much everyone was saying to me 12 months ago there were starting to be some green shoots. But then, you know, start of this year, we saw that credit tighten, credit availability tighten again. And they just said any sign of a recovery in the market really faded very quickly. And uh, a 0.7% fall over the month, uh, you know, values are now down almost 15% from their peak. Um, the last thing, Perth's housing market needs is this credit squeeze that we've got going on at the moment, which is largely because of what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne. But the Hobart market appears to be impervious to their credit squeeze. It, it's, uh, it, it is. I mean, it's still growing. We've seen values up 9.3%. The only thing I'd say about the Hobart market is that the, uh, the rate of growth is actually starting to slow a little bit. I mean, there were a couple of quarters there earlier this year where we were seeing more in excess of 4%. Uh, well, around 4% increases uh, over the three-month period. It's down around 1.5% now. So it has slowed a little bit. And I think the, the thing to watch with Hobart is it really has always had that affordability advantage over the other capital cities. It's now more expensive than Adelaide, Perth, uh, Darwin, closing in pretty quickly on uh, the cost of housing in Brisbane as well. So whilst it's a beautiful place, it doesn't have the affordability advantages like it used to. And I think that will lead to a a bit of a slowdown in that market over the next 12 months or so. Yes. Great to talk to you, Cameron. Thanks. Thanks very much, Alan. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now to tell us what's going on in politics, here's Paul Bongiorno, who used to be the Channel 10 political editor and now is a columnist for the Saturday paper and has been around a long time. Paul, I'm just a poor finance journalist trying to keep up with what's going on in politics and I must confess I'm very confused. Can you enlighten me? Are you able to just sort of summarise where we're at? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I'm a political reporter and I'm just as confused as a finance reporter about what's going on. <laughs> well, 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 clearly the, the broader picture or the broader context is we now have 
uh, a minority government in both houses of parliament. Traditionally in Australia, or for a long time in Australia, uh, the government of the day has had a majority in the lower house and a minority in the upper house. Well, we're now back at minority in both houses, which means that... Um, uh, that that the government doesn't really have the control of its own agenda or of the parliament in such a way that uh, that, that that it's able to portray to the electorate generally a that it knows what it's doing, it's getting on with it, and it's in charge. Uh, and complicating the issue, of course, is on August the twenty fourth, the date that's seared into the brain of Malcolm Turnbull. Um, we saw yet another Australian prime minister brought down by his party room. Uh, now, normally, these coups are done by the, the party that believes that the decapitation will lead to a stronger and better position. The Turnbull decapitation, in fact, has seen a deterioration uh, in support for the federal government, according to all the opinion polls, but most particularly the influential news poll. And as a result... Um, um, Scott Morrison, the new Prime Minister, is basically reeling from the instability caused last week when um, Julia Banks quit the Liberal Party to sit on the, on the crossbench, and this has emboldened several others to make similar threats. The latest example, of course, being Craig Kelly, uh, and, and we saw Morrison further discombobulate, I love that word, but it fits in with what's happening here, um, the Liberal Party, particularly in the, in New South Wales, when we saw basically open warfare between Turnbull and the moderates and the conservatives and, 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 uh, the small centre right faction that, uh, that's, Mor uh, that's, uh, Morrison, the Prime Minister's. So it's been a very messy last two uh, weeks of the Parliament, very messy, um, last, an even messier, if I can put it that way, uh, um, government situation since August the 24th. So what we're really seeing now is a government limping to the next election, um, flying by the seat of its pants and, and trying to um, win over voters by, A, scaring them about the prospect of a Labor government and promising them all sorts of things if they vote Liberal at the next election, which at this stage, if the government can hold its act together, is likely to be on May 18. And so we are, in fact, virtually in an election campaign now, which means that everything that is done and announced in uh, politics is in that context, is it not? Yes, yes, it is. And Paul Keating, but he's not the only one to have put it in these terms, Keating was always wary of what he called the election discount. And, and that is the voters see when you're in this sort of situation, everything you put out there, everything you promise, everything you do as a government, they see it through the cynical prism of, uh, of the election and vote buying. And especially if a government of you know, a Liberal or Labor government uh, starts promising things that it hasn't been promising or has been warning against, you know, for its for its uh, previous time in, in power. Uh, so, so, so already the the um, the cynicism of Australian voters, you know, the old saying that uh, no matter who you vote for, a politician gets in. I think that's ingrained in Australia. It's actually heightened uh, in in the rundown to an election. So do you think that my investor subscribers should get ready for the Labor Party's policies on negative gearing, capital gains tax and dividend franking? Well, I, yes, I do. I mean, I think this is prudent um, um, uh, given that, look, 
Well, first of all, nothing is certain in politics as we know. And uh, I think it was Harold Macmillan, wasn't it? Uh, events, my dear boy, events will shape things. But but if you look at what's happened basically since the last election when Turnbull just managed to escape minority government, the Liberals under either Turnbull or now Morrison have not won uh, a public opinion poll. That means at least, I think, uh, one of the numbers up around a million Australians have have decided that they're not going to vote Liberal again, and uh, uh, or, or at least um, not not give the party their second, their second preference. Now, now that would that means, and of course the betting markets show this if you take any notice of them. And they're not a bad guide actually. That the favourites to win the next election are de- is a definitely the Labor Party. So from that point of view, it would be wise for business to take notice of uh, of you know what uh, the Labor Party's economic policies are and policies as they affect investors. That, but by the way, that also goes for energy investors as well. Yes, indeed. And so, in the meantime, what do you what do you think we're going to be faced with in the uh, next few months? Well. Well, I think we're going to be faced with summer, and I, and I, I suspect that the government is hoping that that the the conventional or traditional thing happens for it, that everyone goes into a summer haze, if not a summer daze, and they start feeling good about themselves and therefore about the government. And there's been a fairly long history of governments improving their stocks over summer because they're doing nothing and the opposition's doing even less. But I think we're in a different situation this time. One of the things that will be very difficult for the government over the summer will be extreme weather. Now, um, you might cast your mind back to when John Howard lost the election in 2007. We were still in the grip of the decade-long drought, uh, which also, of course, fed into the inconvenient truth and, and a, a more alert, uh, more alertness, if you like, about climate change. But what happened is the the psychology of voters around this issue changed dramatically in Australia as our capital cities began running out of water and, and, and as the drought. Uh, dragged on. Well, what we're seeing now with bushfires, I mean, unbelievable, really, bushfires in northern Queensland in what's supposed to be the wet season up there. And 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 the uh, the message is that extreme weather is happening. Now, now whether you want to have a big argument about is this caused by global warming or climate change or not, uh, the fact of the matter is scientists are saying, or the, the, the overwhelming consensus of scientists is that global warming or climate change causes extreme weather. So it's, you're pretty brave to argue that every extreme weather event's got nothing to do with climate change. Now, I've, I've gone on about all of that to show that that if we get more extreme weather, as they say we're going to, as the forecasters say we're going to, over the coming summer months, this will further erode the standing of the government because it's perceived, and we know this from Victoria, what was being said on the booths to federal liberal politicians, we know this from any number of opinion polls on the issue, the electorate believes that the liberals um, are at best half-hearted about climate change and what to do about it. And of course, you've got Malcolm Turnbull out there telling the whole world that they're incapable of doing anything sensible about it. In fact, on Monday, he accused his own party of being ruled by idiocy and ignorance when it came to energy policy. I tell you what, if the North Queenslanders start believing in climate change, it, the, the argument's all over. <laughs> 
Well, 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 exactly. But um, uh, but uh, you know, the, the message is that um, that that they're all wondering, you know, what's what's going on. I mean, they they realise that that the, the the bushfires and the extreme weather up there is um, uh, is caused by something. <laughs> Yes, uh, I think I think Abbott said the other day. Yes, it is. It's caused by weather. <laughs> anyway, anyway, good on you, Paul. Thank you. Good on you, Alan. All the best. Happy birthday, Greg Altman, who would have turned seventy-one on Saturday if he hadn't died last year in May. Here's my particular favourite from the Altman brothers. The Statesboro Blues. That's all for now. Have a great week.